Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Howard Ward, the CIO of Growth Equities for Gabelli Funds, kind enough to join us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Howard, great to see you once again. And let me start with what I think is an important line from one of your most recent notes. You write, uh, this is feeling a bit like late 1999. Help us with the historical analog here. When you look at the market. Prince. Yeah, well, that's what it was. <laughs> I thought it was Prince. As, uh, as I think many of your listeners have noticed, there's been a really tremendous rise in the technology, number of the large cap technology stocks uh, in the last year. You'd be hard pressed to find one that has risen less than 30% over the last 12 months. Uh, in the case of Apple, it's about uh, 65% above its uh, 52-week low. Uh, you know, Amazon's up 40%. Microsoft, Google, they're all up 30% plus. And, uh, you know, this is – the and, and you're having days where some of these very large-cap names will move uh, 2 to 3% higher uh, in a market that has an amazing level of complacency. Um, and this, you can see it when you look at the VIX, and you can just feel it from the lack of downward pressure in stocks. Uh, we, we've gone a long time since we've had a 5 or 10% correction, let alone a 15% correction. And uh, it's gotten too easy to make money. It's gotten too easy to make money in, in large-cap tech. Uh, these are great companies. They're generating a large sums of profits and free cash flow, and that's all good. But, uh, you know, at some point, it probably makes sense to take some money off the table. And with respect to the stocks that I've just mentioned, I have sold a chunk of my uh, Amazon in the last week. I still own a chunk of it, but I've, uh, I've been a seller of Amazon. Uh, great company, but, uh, you know, I think that the expectations for the overall market are somewhat inflated, and I think the expectations for Amazon uh, are as well. How does Howard Ward process an earnings report? When this comes out, when the Apple report comes out after the bill today, what are you going to be looking for? What's the first thing that you check? Well, interestingly enough, in this uh, environment that we're in, unless there was a a tremendous miss uh, in terms of their revenues and earnings, uh, and and by the way, the sort of consensus expectations is uh, $2.02 of earnings for Apple for the quarter on revenues that are going to be real close to around $53 billion, which is amazing for one quarter. Uh, But unless there's a real miss, the focus is really going to be on the guidance that they give. Uh, Now, you know, that also is a bit tricky because Apple, I think, appropriately has a tendency to downplay their guidance, the very conservative guidance. And we're heading into the, the... introduction of the uh, 10th anniversary phone, the next generation of the iPhone, uh, probably coming out this summer. And the expectations for this are are very large. And that's one of the reasons this stock has done so well. We've had this 
re-rating of Apple shares in the last year. It's gone from 10 times forward earnings to 15 times forward earnings, which is still not exorbitant. But for a company of its size, where secular growth and the double digits is going to be a challenge, it's probably not far from where it's likely to peak. I don't think Apple's going to be selling it 20 times forward earnings. So the focus with the report is really going to be on the guidance. Uh, I'm assuming there's not going to be a big miss. It's going to be, uh, there might be some news on a new dividend today. They don't always do that together with the earnings release. In fact, they frequently decouple that. Yeah, yeah. So let's not get our hopes up for that. Uh, but I think it's going to be a pretty right. healthy report. Apple is made up of a manufacturing worry by the gloomsters over the next product won't do it. You and I know that. We've all know that, folks. I mean, everybody's got this stuff. We have almost too many logins at home on Apple. Like They shut us down because we've got too many toys at home. But around it is a service sector that any other CEO in the world would die for. What's the sum of the parts valuation of Apple now? <clears throat> well, have, have you done that work recently? Well, what I can tell you, Tom, in the service part uh, – it's not entirely uh, separate from the phone itself because a lot of the service is buying uh, applications through the phone. But Oh, really? But, but the service is, is, is about 11% of revenues growing in a mid-teen, mid-to-high teen rate. Yeah, I'll go with that. And, That's conservative. And uh, this should, over time, because it's outgrowing the rest of the company, it's going to become a bigger part of the business. It should lend... A somewhat greater to a somewhat greater multiple on the company's earnings over time. It's not that material right now. Um, I think the the greater issue for Apple long term is can they protect that gross margin in the thirty nine thirty eight to forty percent area? Where is that gross margin created? Is it created in China in a manufacturing process and logistics, or is it created in marketing or imagery or goodwill and bad? Well, they manage their costs very well, and they get a premium price for their product. And so, uh, and the, by the way, the average selling price uh, for the next-gen phone is expected to be a, a new high uh, for Apple iPhones. So uh, they have continued to defy the skeptics with the pricing power of the iPhone. And part of that is the quality of the goods, and part of that's the Apple ecosystem, which tends to tie you into their applications uh, and their, their, their music. And, and, of course, they're now getting into the area of video content as well. How you mentioned you sold some of your uh, your Amazon stock. Are you, are you recommending that more broadly? Is this a time to a time to sell? Well, I think if anybody is sensitive to uh, uh, short-term market results, if they have a, a tax-exempt account, mm -hmm. even taxable, if you're looking to, for an exit, what are you waiting for? Um, you know, Amazon... It is a great company, but uh, you know it too was up more than more than forty forty five percent in the last year, and um, I can recall back in the first quarter of two thousand, uh, which was the the last up quarter for the bull market of the nineties, and and and, and um, I took four hundred million dollars of capital gains in technology stocks that quarter, uh, doing it when I felt like maybe I was a little early, but it. The, the, there was the, the stocks had just gone too far too fast, um, I th and that's why I say it feels like that again now that it's 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 gotten too easy. Uh, you need to take some money off the table here. The valuations are more of a challenge than they have been, and you're getting more retail investment in these stocks. And of course, the impact of ETFs is is very much part of that. So yeah, I would take some money off the table unless you're really committed 
to keeping your position uh, for a long period of time. Howard, let me ask you a bit about growth. Uh, we've heard the, the administration talk so much about the potential for 3% growth, 4% growth, certainly with the uh, unveiling of the White House tax proposal. We heard it again. Uh, what's your sense of, of what the economy is going to do domestically? Well, let's start with the uh, sort of expectations there are right around 2% growth, uh, plus or minus 0.2 uh, for this year and next. And so the Trump administration would need to get much more successful with their uh, legislative agenda in order to uh, S, you know, improve on that. But let's go back to the mathematics of how you improve your GDP growth, because it's pretty simple. You can have your existing workforce work more hours. That's probably not going to uh, result in much. You can add to your labor force, and that's a one half of 1%, to maybe a 1% boost at most. Or you can improve your the productivity of your workforce. And productivity has stalled. Uh, you know, that's a 1% or less than 1% uh, improvement these days. And so it's really hard to get a rate of growth north of 2%, and that's why we haven't done it for a while. Can you can you change the tax code and engineer growth of 3 or 4% 3 or 4% for a few quarters? Yes, but unless you can go back to the equation of the productivity and labor force and how you're going to improve that, yeah. it's not going to be sustainable. Howard Ward uh, with us with Gabelli Funds. David, I think we need to talk hedge funds, 2 and 20. Yeah, our colleague Eric Schatzker, a number of our colleagues are out at the Milken Institute Global Conference in Beverly Hills, and um, there were some great interviews yesterday. More will be on our air, both on radio and television uh, today. Eric Schatzker sat down with Ken Griffin, the head of Citadel, and they had a very wide-ranging conversation in which they talked about investing. They talked about uh, the political landscape uh, in Washington. They talked about, as you say, uh, the status of the future of hedge funds. Here's what he had to say. It's not just a shakeout for the hedge fund industry. It's a shakeout for active management. Right? We see the rise of passive money in ETFs and index products. We're seeing money come out of active management and head towards passive structures. Now, as that happens, the money that's in passive structures obviously is not pursuing alpha in the same way. That should make the markets a little less efficient, which should create a larger profit pool for those who remain. So we're going to find a new equilibrium over the months and years to come. Passive is going to be bigger. Active is going to be smaller. And the firms that are best able to assemble, analyze, and incorporate information in their investment decision-making processes are going to continue to earn outsized returns. Ken Griffin there, the head of Citadel, speaking uh, with yeah. our colleague Eric Schatzker. Uh, yes, we've, had the, we've, we've been following this debate for so long, the active versus passive. Today, what did you hear there from Mr. Griffin? Well, that was interesting, and there was one Greek letter in there that, that bears discussion here, and that is alpha. Mm -hmm. Beta, gamma, delta, <laughs> vega, theta. They all mean different things to different people. But the, the, the thrust of this, David, is so many of our listeners are just trying to beat a benchmark or even make the benchmark. That's the advantage of passive. You're going to make the index. Mm. Or maybe you want to beat the index. Robert Kirby was a legend at Capital Guardian Trust in Los Angeles. And he would say, boy, if you can make two percentage points better and the S&P, you're living large. And Mr. Bogle at Vanguard has said, eh, maybe you will. Some will, many won't. Alpha's different. Alpha's trying to make it so that you can get a 2% hedge fund fee 
and pick up 20% of the gain over some hurdle rate. It's totally different than like your 401k. And so you got to be careful about the conflation of those two strains of thought. Ken, Gr- Ken Griffin telling uh, Eric Schatzker that there is less alpha uh, to be had. This interview yes. happened about one thirty yesterday, one thirty Wall yeah. Street time, uh, right after our colleague spoke with the President of the United yeah. States. And Eric asked uh, Mr. Griffin what he thought about that proposal the President made or the fact that he's considering the breaking up the big banks and um, Ken Griffin telling him he's in favor of breaking up the big banks. He says he favors a new Glass-Steagall and said he saw some opportunity there for Citadel if that were if that were to happen. Ken Griffin, a, a longtime uh, Republican donor, somebody who uh, is an affiliated member of that of that party, has given a lot of money uh, to that party. He talked a lot about Washington in the context of that mm-hmm. interview. He said 100 days is not enough time to judge what the president well, has go done with that. to him. Yeah, I'll go with that. But, you know, I would defer to the hedge fund manager, Michael McKee, uh, <laughs> who, uh, who's actually looked around at what people are going to do about this incredibly exciting idea of a new redux of 1933 banking. Uh, to take us back there, it was a pretty ugly time for the nation. And to, to remind everyone, Glass-Steagall's not an act. It's not even a legislation. It's, it's, it's some paragraphs slid into a very slim 1933, yet profound 33-34 combo. No one's talking about any kind of reform, and particularly today. David, you're not going to get a slim act today. I mean, look at how voluminous Dodd-Frank is. Yeah, or even that funding bill that the House and Senate have to vote on, 2,000 pages they're going to be presumably finding their way through uh, this week. Ken Griffin saying uh, his biggest concern in the coming years, the U.S. could slide into recession. I wrote Eric Schatzker after this interview. He very elegantly asked uh, Ken Griffin about Citadel, noting that a lot of people have said it's a tough shop to work in. People come through, they get chewed up, chewed up and then they, uh, <laughs> they move I, on. And I, I thought that Ken I, Griffin I was like, he said there's a lot of good people available to hire. Look, I, I would suggest people listen to Mr. Ackman's interview with Francine Lacroix. Yes. I thought the New York Times did a nice treatment on Mr. Paulson uh, today in the cover of their business section. All these guys, as Ken mentions there, are really struggling to have the opportunity for return, opportunity for alpha, given how dampened volatility is across asset classes. And um, I mean, the VIX 10.16 with that nine print mm-hmm. yesterday is symbolic of a lot of other asset classes as well. You can check out all these interviews on the Bloomberg uh, at TV Go. Uh, of course, you can look yeah. at them at Bloomberg.com we, as well. Bill Ackman and Ken Griffin and a number of other ones. Can we talk Theta now? Can we do, John, <laughs> can we do two Greek letters in one interview or is that too much? Was, theta. Was that uh, the fraternity you pledged in college? <laughs> no, I wasn't. Looking no, for the lapel no, pin. No, that was a sorority. This is Bloomberg. This is a great uh, pleasure. I will probably talk to Chairman Bernanke about this. We'll see how much time I have. Uh, David Gura joining us now. Next year will be the 20th anniversary of Against the Tide. It was definitive. If you were cool in 1998, you carried Douglas Irwin's Against the Tide hardcover around with you. Some people, Doug, actually read it. Uh, hard to believe. I guess maybe the President of the United States didn't read it. But let me ask you right now in 2017 to vamp off of Paul Krugman's Ricardo's Dilemma. What you and Professor Krugman do in international economics and international trade 
is complex, isn't it? I mean, what Ricardo did on comparative advantage is a tough concept to grasp, isn't it? Actually, just uh, a few weeks ago, um, it was the 200th anniversary of David Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage. Uh, and uh, I've written about that. Uh, Krugman's written about that in his little essay called uh, Ricardo's Difficult Idea. Yeah. And as we know in the classroom, it's very difficult even with uh, bright 20-year-olds to, to <clears throat> talk about this idea of yeah. compared to advantage. That's certainly tough in the policy realm as well. Is it difficult to talk to a grizzled 70-year-old sitting in the Oval Office as well about comparative advantage? Well, he does seem that he has this zero-sum uh, you know, a view of trade, and I don't know whether that comes from his business background as a uh, um, casino owner or a property developer where you know, in a casino, if the house wins, you lose. In property, either you get the property or someone else does. But international trade is a very different activity where both countries can benefit from exchanging goods and services with one another. Professor Irwin, what are we learning about this administration's trade policy at this point? We've been citing an interview that our colleagues did with the president yesterday. He said he's all ready to uh, rewrite, revise NAFTA. He's just waiting on the Democrats uh, in the Congress to give him the authorization to do that. Of course, there's all this formality with the letter having to be sent and, and this and that. But uh, we certainly saw the countervailing duties imposed last week on uh, softwood. Talk of that happening with dairy. Wilbur Ross now looking uh, at aluminum as well. What, what are we learning about the priorities of this administration when it comes to trade? Well, I think the, the administration is learning that <clears throat> politics is difficult. Um, there are divisions within the administration about how hard lines take on China and on uh, Mexico and NAFTA, and also divisions between the executive branch and Congress over what to do as well. You've seen some pushback from members of Congress who are afraid of just ripping up NAFTA because Mexico will retaliate against our farm exports. So you get Republicans, members of Congress from the Midwest farm states who are very much against that. Now, in terms of some of the other things you pointed out, in uh, softwood lumber or uh, some of the anti-dumping anti, uh, uh, and countervailing duties, these are actually sort of relatively small, product-specific uh, trade skirmishes that occur under any administration. So that's not really a tact or a switch in terms of the Trump administration, but I do expect we'll see many more of those uh, smaller uh, problems come, cropping up as well. When you talk to the Secretary of Commerce, he says a, a priority for the administration is more enforcement. Looking back on the last few administrations, uh, to what degree was enforcement prioritized? What, what stands to change here? Well, what stands to change is that usually enforcement depends on uh, pr the private sector petitioning the government. So an import competing industry will say, you know, imports are being dumped in the market. These, this is unfair. They notify the government, and the government launches an investigation. What the Trump administration promises to do is be much more proactive, not wait for the private industry to file a case, but actually say, we're going to initiate cases on our own. And the statute that they've uh, chosen, chosen to invoke now is a very obscure provision in U.S. trade law dating back to 1962 saying national security is at issue. So that was the case they announced just a couple weeks ago regarding uh, steel. Um, and so I think we're going to get many more trade cases that they themselves are going to uh, start the initiation process and not wait for the private sector to to uh, you know, begin on their own. Mm. Professor, ages ago, you did a, a wonderful compendium of Jacob Viner of Chicago, Lectures in Economics 301. What should we learn from Jacob Viner about mercantilism? Well, you're, uh, J Jacob Viner is one of the great students of mercantilism, one of the great scholars of all time in terms of international trade. He wrote a terrific book called Studies in the Theory of International Trade. And he wrote uh, in the 1930s and 40s, and in particular the period when the U.S. was trying after World War II to set up this new institution called the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, to try to bring down trade barriers around the world. 
And he was a little bit skeptical that they could pull this off because he realized that the, the pull of mercantilist thinking, the worry about that is going to harm the domestic economy if we open up to trade, um, is so powerful in the public's minds and in the uh, minds of politicians that it's a very difficult thing to do. And yet, remarkably, over the past 60, 70 years or so, yeah. the U.S. has exerted a tremendous leadership in uh, bringing down trade barriers around the world. And I think worldwide economic <laughs> prosperity today that we see uh, owes something to that. Yeah. Douglas Irwin, thank you so much with Dartmouth College. He has a wonderful book coming out later this year uh, on uh, our trade policy, Vintage 2017. I just put out on Twitter, David Gura, uh, his classic, Against the Tide. I also put out Krugman's David Ricardo piece, which is must must, must read of the frustration of pros in talking about how trade can benefit societies, even with a massive labor disruption and the wild dispersion of wages and income. And I even did a photograph of Jacob Viner's uh, classic summary by Douglas Irwin. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Talking earlier about the Greek letters, we were alphaing it about Ken Griffith at Citadel as well. Maybe it's time to theta it. Julian Emanuel joins us with UBS. He does derivatives and equities for UBS. We usually keep the conversation sort of not simple, but, you know, focused on where we're going in stocks and bonds. I guess we could do that, Julian. But I want to talk about how everybody's smart. And there's a lot of research about the time function, the theta function on the x-axis until you blow up. And the bottom line is a lot of research folks is somewhere in the vicinity of three years. You can be a genius. You can be smart. You can be, oh, I got out of that okay. You can be a genius. You can be smart four times in a row. And then whammo, you get hit by one negative event. And that happens to every hedge fund. And frankly, it happens to me, David Gurra. John Tucker, you've never enjoyed this experience because you've gone up, up, up for hours. I'm an investment genius, yes. <laughs> yes I know that. First but, to say that. Julian, how do you protect yourself from blowing up in the land of theta? It, it is a challenge because basically when the market volatility is as low as it is now, it sort of seduces you into taking more risk than you might normally. Uh, we saw that in 2006 and 2007. That was when the concept of VAR, value at risk, uh, got debunked. Basically, at this point in the cycle, 
eight years in, you need to remain disciplined. And that means don't take on more leverage than, than you believe you can handle. And when you think about things that are causing you to perhaps reassess a position, a stock, what, what have you, uh, theta is actually very inexpensive right now, and hedges make sense. When you, when you see the VIX where it was yesterday, how do you react and what do you do? disbelief, to be perfectly frank, uh, because part of this entire story, getting back to Theta, the fact that, that uh, you know, money should have some sort of time value, um, what we would have thought that with the Fed beginning the rate hike cycle, and we think they're going to hike uh, in June, um, that there would be a higher value to Theta than there is now. Uh, but so to us, you know, again, it, it comes down to selectively looking at one's portfolio when things are a little bit too out of whack or you feel a bit uncomfortable. And, and frankly, we're seeing clients do that now, thinking about um, hedging their U.S. exposure as they turn towards Europe. Um, it, it is a, a perfect time to take advantage of Theta. As they turn toward Europe, what, what do you like in Europe right now? What's, what's attractive to you there? Well, if, if Europe's going to work... Um, obviously, uh, political risk is, is uh, dead ahead of us on, on Sunday. But if Europe is going to work, it's going to be different than uh, when it worked uh, to a large extent in the first quarter of 2015. It's going to work because the economy is going to accelerate, uh, perhaps uh, pound for pound, a little bit more than the U.S. economy is, is going to accelerate. And so that leads us towards the cyclicals chemicals, dare I say financials. Um, because, dare you may. Well, we, we, we do. Um, uh, you know, and, and again, uh, exporters, because this time the exporters aren't going to be as affected by a gently rising euro, which will happen um, if political uh, risk becomes uh, somewhat <clears throat> less next right. week and if the economy does better because they're exporting to emerging markets who are picking up as well. Let's go back to the VIX, 10.09. We had a nine-handle. I, I went back once, folks. I looked at the daily uh, charts of the VIX, maybe even intraday. I can't remember right now. It is rare now, Julian, to be where we are. If we're rare here, why aren't we at Dow 22,000? Why is volatility so low if we're not bursting out to massive record highs. Well, it, it actually ha has something to do with it. And I don't know exactly what the Greek letter uh, for this is, is something called low correlation. So basically, on a day-to-day -day basis, for the last three months, if you're looking at the Dow, you're looking at the S&P, it goes nowhere and nowhere very quickly. Uh, and what that means is the stocks underlying those indexes are all moving in different directions day-to-day, minute-to-minute. And the reason uh, that's happening, in our view, is because there's this incredible disconnect between what everyone likes to call the hard data, where the economy actually is, and the soft data, the confidence uh, that uh, you know gets tweeted about so often. Um, and the market is waiting for those two to reconcile. How do you like the VIX when you look at measures of volatility? What does it offer you versus, versus others? Well, it, it, it's one of those things in our business, generally, the simplest, most accepted measure is the one that makes the most sense. There are derivatives of the VIX. There's, you know, double levered inverse and so on and so forth. But it, at, at its simplest, it just measures, you know, the perception 
of the risk and the fear out there. And, and again, to us, it's one of those things. We mm-hmm. and and at extremes, we tend to lose this perspective. The VIX is a mean reverting right. instrument, and the long run average is nineteen versus ten this morning. Is ca- let's get philosophical, folks. It's Philosophical Tuesday. Is cash an asset? Absolutely, and it's becoming a more valuable asset with uh, with uh, you know every uh, piece of Fed rhetoric. How do you position yourself for Sunday night or or Monday morning? Tom's going to position himself by buying a baguette and some burgundy uh, in Paris. But what are you doing to get ready for that election? You see the polling and see indications of where it's likely to go. How do you prepare for what happens once we do get the official results? Well, it, it, before events such as this. What you really should do is plan where you think you want to be several weeks in advance. And and actually, when we think about the run-up to both Brexit and the U.S. election, this one is a little different. People are saying, my goodness, hedges didn't didn't make any sense post-Brexit, post-U.S. election. So I'm not going to pay up for hedges, which is why the VIX is where it is today. What you really want to do is have your portfolio in a situation where – if you know the the volatile event occurs, you imagine yourself to be a buyer down ten percent in the U.S. markets. Um, likewise, if the markets start running away, you don't want to be chasing that to the upside is either. This, is this discussion that we're having all about the great distortion? Is it just about the effect of central bank theory and practice upon the fixed income market? Do you just carry that right through and? process it right through to equities? Absolutely. I mean, historians will be I'm just trying out my questions for Ben Bernanke on you, you know, (laughs) run by Julian Emanuel at first. Uh, Historians will look at this period in awe because literally, you know, the suppression of interest rates worldwide and part of what is potentially the allure of Europe next week is that the the risk on mood if it materializes is going to take some pressure off the rate markets mm-hmm. and you know we might start seeing you know positive yields in some other instruments that might. have long been might exactly yeah. but it, it it determines everything we do <clears throat> i'm looking at the german two year right now negative 0.719 not near record lows but still uh, very suppressed towards a larger negative yield. Everything considered. I also look at the Swiss 20-year. That's positive, but that isn't going anywhere. No, nothing's talking positive yields here on my Bloomberg screen. We'll continue with Julian Emanuel of UBS. Julian Emanuel to dovetail with this from UBS. Julian, have you been surprised by earnings? To me, from a distance, it's actually oh. They're pretty good. Am I right on that? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the surprises are coming from where we expected them to. Uh, obviously, energy the year-on-year compare is is very easy. Remember the plunge below thirty dollars in the first quarter of sixteen. Uh, financials had a tough quarter last year as well, and that's been a big bright spot. We continue to like financials and technology. This is the second straight quarter of just knocking the cover off the ball. Uh, so the picture looks pretty good to us. What are you looking for today in the Apple report? What's it going to tell you about the state of the market uh, overall when you get that state earnings report? State of the market. State of the market. Well, we don't tend to focus on on the individual report yeah. by report uh, all that much. But what will be interesting is if on the, the happenstance that there's a, a talk about cash. 
because um, that is one of the biggest holders of offshore cash. And when we think about tax reform, uh, repatriation is a big part of the puzzle. And we think that's part of the reason that technology in general uh, has outperformed year to date. Glad you bring this up because that was a facet of this tax reform proposal that the White House released uh, last week. And we can quibble over what's going to stay and what's going to go. But uh, based on that, do you begin to game out what that could mean for a company like Apple, what it could mean for a sector, say say the tech sector, for, for companies that have cash overseas, uh, what that might mean for the bottom line? Yeah, absolutely. No, no question about it. And to us, the, the opportunity um, in November and December of last year when you know industrials and the deepest cyclicals got bid up, whereas healthcare and technology, the two sectors with the largest offshore cash balances, underperformed was uh, was something coming into 17 that we thought was was really a great opportunity. We've seen those sectors outperform. And the fact is, when you think about it, we think they're going to continue outperforming simply because when you look at tax reform, repatriation is the one thing that both sides of the aisle seem to be able to agree on. Uh, Jennifer Jacobs, one of our reporters who sat down with the president yesterday good. was on the show, yeah, talking yeah. about that interview and the degree to which the president, over the course of it, continued to maintain that we're going to get to 3 or 4% growth here in the U.S. And something that Jennifer pointed out was he seems to be doing this to make the markets think that this is happening, whether or not it's happening soon, later. How is that playing here in, in your world, what the president is saying? By talking about tax reform and the prospects for health care reform, even if we're not seeing much movement, is the only thing that matters the fact that he's still talking about it? Well, it, when you look at the confidence numbers, clearly yeah. the talk has helped. There's no question about it. But again, to us, when you look at a, a first quarter where GDP came in at 0.7 versus these num confidence numbers that are literally at all-time highs, uh, you know, it's, it brings back that old Wendy's commercial, where's the beef? You really need to see the economy pick up and move towards where the confidence yeah. numbers are. Are we in a trap now with 25, 26 multiple stocks? Call it almost nifty 50. I don't mean it is, but there there is this valuation. Are we at a point where we're beginning to rationalize ownership by buying not one year out or two years out, but farther out revenues, earnings, and cash flow? Are we falling into that? Well, it'll be a good value in 2019 trap. There's definitely an element uh, of that in, in the marketplace, but I would suggest it's more in the sectors where growth is, you know, tends to be at a lower plane for longer. Uh, consumer staples, utilities in particular, uh, we see some very high multiples there. Um, and, you know, frankly, if all of, of the plans are going to unfold and the Fed is going to hike and we are going to normalize and we are going to achieve north of 2% GDP growth next year, interest rate sensitive stocks, low growth stocks, even when they beat on earnings, are vulnerable. What are you looking at uh, outside of equities? When you look at, say, the currency space, what, what, what's you, what are you drawn to at this point? What, what pairs? Uh, well, definitely dollar-euro is, is absolutely in the focus because to us, and again, unlike 2015, when Europe outperformed, it was completely due to a weak euro mm. trade. The whole thesis was exporters mm -hmm. are going to do great because the euro is crashing, uh, oil is crashing, so on. This is completely the opposite set of circumstances. We want to see the euro strengthen as a sign that the global economy is, is, is uh, stable yeah. and, and accelerating. Julian, thank you for the update. Julian Emanuel with UBS there. I particularly like the conversation on theta. We rarely talk about theta or the x-axis.
now we have a, a, a Washington interview. Yeah, we continue to, to look at, talk about, analyze the interview that our colleagues uh, Margaret Talv and Jennifer Jacobs did yesterday with the President of the United States. They were in the Oval Office with President Donald Trump for about half an hour yesterday, having a wide-ranging interview with I'll him. Say. Margaret Talv, our senior White House correspondent, joins us now. Margaret, let me just start with where you guys started with that interview. The 100-day marker had passed. You wanted to look ahead with the president. What did you set out to do here in this interview? Uh, well, yes, thanks. Uh, we set out to talk to him for as absolutely long as <laughs> he would keep us in there. Uh, look, we wanted to see where he was going now looking forward. Um, you know, it was sort of a, a, a mixed review or a humbling review of his first 100 days. He, he had the Supreme Court nominee, but in terms of most of his major other initiatives, they uh, have at least been sort of stuck or in process. Uh, but he obviously has his mind in a number of different areas, and sort of the big news he made in our interview uh, all seemed to circle around the theme of things he'd be willing to do that would upend orthodoxy or defy expectations, right? His Potential theoretical willingness to have for him to be the person doing a direct talk with Kim Jong Un if it comes to that, um, the notion that he might be willing to uh, look at levying a gas tax, uh, which would you know would be very controversial among uh, Republicans uh, as well as uh, some folks who would advocate for sort of middle class folks, gas prices, etc. And then this idea of breaking up the big banks, all of these uh, in, in sort of you know different um, channels would all upend orthodoxy uh, potentially depending on how he pursued them. Yeah, and you, you, you too, uh, you and Jennifer weren't Dickerson. Uh, like Sean Dickerson no, was no, the interview ended well, in very normal maybe fashion. In part because we didn't hit the Obama wiretap question hard. Uh, but and, and certainly, like, if we'd had another yeah. half hour, I mean, I'm absolutely curious about that. But look, we're Bloomberg, and we're incredibly interested in, in all things economy. And he was interested in talking about them. He knew exactly who right. he was talking to. He knew exactly whose attention he was trying to get. And, uh, you know, Wall Street banks uh, and Congress, there was a tremendous amount of interest and, and, right. and reaction, although re- Reaction, I would say, with kind of a let's wait and yeah. see what he's talking about sort, right. Of, right. sort of feel to it. And Margaret, thank you for your comments. The other night I was watching on C-SPAN, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I thought those were important uh, comments so that you uh, made. When, when I look at Trump and the analysis, I don't read your stuff, Margaret. I go to Trump Draws out on Twitter. And <laughs> my question to you is, when he's doing the joke of Trump Draws, and the last one is, I thought it would be easier, there's all these people standing behind them. They seem to have evaporated in the last 48 hours. Who is providing support to our president on the various and sundry statements of the last 30 hours? Or is he really going it alone right now? His staff, his top aides, uh, in the course of this sort of post-100 days reset, seem to be in more reactive mode, in part because they're not entirely prepared for all the things that he's saying. But I think we will see Gary Cohn, Steve Mnuchin uh, working both on the Hill and and in their public comments to try to sort of put a fence, some boundaries around uh, what he's teasing with regard to banks when it comes to foreign policy, you're looking uh, on, at least behind the scenes at at this being sort of, again, the job for 
H.R. McMaster, for Jim Mattis, and for Rex Tillerson, uh, and, and on a more public face for his team, both in the press operation and the National Security Council, to sort of dial back some of what he said about Kim Jong-un and say, well, look, uh, he's preserving his options. Mm. He's talking about what's possible, but we are not there yet. But again, uh, this has left a lot of Republicans on the Hill sort of saying, we need to really understand what he's talking about when he's mm-hmm. doing. We're getting some mixed signals mm-hmm. here. We understand he wants right. to keep possibilities open, right. keep people guessing, but we need a little more certainty. David, quickly. Yeah, Margaret, very quickly. We were talking to Marty Shanker just about the message or what he learned from that interview about the relationship between the president and Congress. And in the hour that has passed since we talked with Marty Shanker, your boss, our senior executive editor for international uh, government, President Trump has tweeted here about our country needing a good shutdown in September to fix the mess. How's that going to ring out over Capitol Hill? <laughs> well, a little. Da- I, I read it as a as a dare to Republicans to consider pursuing the nuclear option for legislation as well as for for the judiciary mm. and for the Supreme Court. And so, uh, but look, I, maybe he's telling Democrats, "Get yourself in order, or else I'm willing to go there on a shutdown." But I think the messaging may even be more complex and be dealing with the balance of power that what distinguishes the Senate from the House yeah. and President Trump's desire to consolidate power around himself. Well, Margaret, keep the president away from the red button on the desk, the one for the Coke <laughs> or the Pepsi. The I don't Buttons yeah. Right. Yeah. Coke, no Pepsi. Margaret Tillett, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, you. With an important interview, yes, seriously, important interview yesterday with the President of the United States. Uh, David, what do you make of this? You're covering the Washington Beat much more than I am. Synthesize this for us as, as you can do. It, it's fascinating to, to read through the transcripts of these interviews. About, about a week ago, we got an interview the AP did with the President, and you yeah. can really see sort of how he talks about these things, comes to talk about them. Uh, in this interview, in the transcript for this interview, you see him pausing, wrestling with what to say, acknowledging, as we've heard from Marty and from Margaret, uh, he recognizes the news-makingness of, of what he's what he's saying. Um, I, I agree with Margaret. I see I see the dare here, the line before that one about the shutdown, change the rules now to 51 percent. And, yeah. and as Margaret was alluding to, that would be a pretty radical reformation of how uh, the world's most famous deliberative body works uh, I, in Washington. I, I would suggest that maybe in any regard, he just needs to focus on the here and present. And isn't that the health care legislation? Yeah, or tax uh, reform or the funding bill. No, I uh, think it's health care <laughs> to get to Thursday based on what I've read. Yeah. And and they, don't, they don't have the votes right now, folks. And the lights are on until Friday night at least. So. Yeah, I, I would say, is, well, but that's normal. I would say that, that the become normal. You're right. Yeah, uh, is normal as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.